Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as saddened as I am to have to say this, it appears that we are once again heading into a new darkening age where we humans continue to ignore the threats coming at us as the climate changes, and instead we focus on fighting with one another. However, while the mass media fans the flames of fear, I think that there's a better way to get through these days, with laughter and humor. Keep a smile on your face and make the bastards wonder what you're thinking, what you're thinking about them. (laughs) So we're going to have some fun here today. And uh, you may remember that this past summer I commented on the death of one of our nation's historical figures, Paul Krasner. Now you may ask how a man who was primarily known for his humor became a historical figure. And if you had a few days free in which I can tell you his full story, I'd be happy to uh, begin talking about him right now. But unfortunately, neither of us has that kind of time. So I'm going to treat us to a few segments from some recordings of his talks. And in this podcast, you're going to hear about some of the uh, more humorous political activities that he instigated and promoted. And I hope that uh, you'll give some thought to all that Paul Krasner did to make this world a little better and a lot happier. Now, one of Paul Krasner's closest friends was Abby Hoffman. And in this podcast, we're going to hear about several of their more famous capers, such as the time that they organized tens of thousands of anti-war activists to come to Washington and surround the Pentagon in a satirical attempt to cause it to levitate. (laughs) And while I would like to claim that I participated in that event, I wasn't there because at the time I was engaged in combat in Vietnam. So uh, to begin our little excursion into the mind of Paul Krasner, I'm going to begin with a short bit in which he points out the importance of satire in political commentary. He made a poster in the 1950s with just two words on it. Fuck communism. He's the only person in the world ever to win awards from both Playboy and the Feminist Party Media Workshop. So there it is. We'd like to invite Mr. Paul Krasner to the podium. Thank you. Um, uh, First, I want to... quash a rumor that's been going around that uh, the Society for Ethical Culture was founded by Tom DeLay. Uh, Not true. Um, And uh, I don't know if you saw uh, uh, George Bush's speech today uh, where he boasted that since 9-11, 10 attacks uh, have been prevented uh, by al-Qaeda. which, of course, was a signal to al-Qaeda today, uh, so that, if you haven't heard, there is a a new level of alert, a higher alert on the New York subways. Um, Did anybody come by subway today? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, did did you feel safer because there was a a green alert or whatever color it was? Um, I think the speech was written by Karen Hughes, uh, who first uh, uh, was the first one to... Uh, teach Bush that he shouldn't call terrorists folks. Uh, and um, I, um, 
I, in, in terms of satire, I, you know, it comes from, from the contradictions and, and the um, hypocrisy. And uh, a recent example of that is after uh, Hurricane Katrina, the, um, well, first of all, the federal government has always, in cases like uh, medical marijuana in California and dying with dignity in Oregon, uh, has said, well, federal law supersedes uh, uh, these state referendums, referenda, and um, uh, states' rights, it's not just for racists anymore. Um, but after Katrina, they uh, started saying, oh, no, no, it's the states, it's the local, uh, because they're just covering their asses. Between the government and the corporations and the military and organized religion, there are so many asses being covered across America now that it looks like a Christo art project. Uh, um, but, but, um, but speaking of medical marijuana is a good example of, of, of the hypocrisy um, because the Partnership for a Drug-Free America was funded and founded originally by the alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceutical companies. And, um, and so, because they don't want any competition because, you know, the... Uh, well, first of all, there are all these commercials on TV for pharmaceutical uh, prescriptions which um, they tell you to ask your doctor uh, if such and such a drug is uh, right for you. I have a list of about 15 prescription drugs now. I save them up because I don't want to keep bothering my doctor. Uh, uh, you know, but, but all of them have side effects that are worse than what they're supposed to uh, cure. So, you know, if you get Lipitor for your cholesterol, one of the side effects, I think, is anal leakage. Um, if, you, if, you have, uh, if you take Prozac for depression, one of the effects is uh, uh, suicidal uh, impulses. Um, my favorite is Provacol, which promises that it will prevent your first heart attack and prevent your second heart attack, which means then that when you have your, your first heart attack, you'll think it's really your third. Um, uh, but they say that, well, medical marijuana, uh, the movement is just to serve as a wedge for, for the decriminalization of all marijuana. And, uh, the, and, and they say, and then, that, you know, it'll become uh, uh, out of control. Because uh, they're worried, you know. You, uh, High Times magazine once had a questionnaire. One of the questions was, is it possible to smoke too much pot? And one of the readers sent in, said, he said, I don't understand the question. Uh, but um, as, an, as an unbeliever, um, it's, it's interesting to me to see uh, how much killing is done in the name of this deity that I don't believe in. I mean, to me, uh, Walt Disney was an intelligent designer. Uh, Incidentally, for those of you who remember the Disneyland Memorial Orgy I published in 1967, uh, it's been digitally, co digitally colored and is available now on my website, paulkrasner.com. Uh, not to be confused with uh, Bush's website, which is crony.com. Um, and so, um, so when you think of the administration, you know, I mean, Bush and, and Cheney, it's, it's long been known that Cheney is a ventriloquist. And... Uh, which is why he talks out of the side of his mouth like this. Never quite got the craft down. Uh, um, 
And uh, Donald Rumsfeld, I, I have imaginary dialogues with these people. Um, so I, you know, I would say to Donald Rumsfeld, well, you know, at Guantanamo Bay, um, the prisoners aren't allowed to be in touch with their lawyers, let alone with their families, and they're there in these cages, and they have to spin. And he says, you don't understand. I mean, he always asks questions himself, you know. Am I a mean-spirited prick? Well, yes, that's a very subjective question, you know. So um, I said to Rumsfeld, uh, uh, you know, how can you call this fr uh, uh, freedom when look what you're doing to these prisoners who haven't even been charged with anything specifically? And he said, well, you know, they have more freedom uh, than a lot of people in America. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they can go to Cuba and you can't. Uh, um, I remember when uh, Bill Clinton was president and he promised that he would uh, end the ban of gays in the military. I don't know why gays would want to be in the military. I don't know why heteros would want to be in the military or transsexuals or... Uh, bisexuals, but in any case, uh, he was dissuaded from doing it by Colin Powell. Then we had the first African-American head of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was saying uh, the men in the barracks would feel uncomfortable if a gay man slept in the same barracks with them. And now uh, Colin Powell, of course, came from a military family, so I would say to him, uh, look, General Powell, is." Isn't this the same thing they used to say about blacks, that it would make the men in the barracks uncomfortable if a black man slept in the same barracks? And Colin Powell explained, he said, well, we never told anybody we were black. <laughs> so this was the forerunner of the don't ask, don't tell policy. Um, so now, um, you know, with... with um, uh, the terrorist threat, people don't really get into the minds of the terrorists because, um, you know, we've all, aside from any grievances they have, they're promised uh, that uh, as martyrs they'll go to Nirvana and meet 72 virgins and also have orgasms that last 600 years. Uh, it's impossible to conceive. With, with my luck, at 150 years I would have a premature ejaculation. <laughs> Uh, damn. So um, I'm going to end now because there are others here uh, among us uh, five white geezers uh, um, who have satirical insights to share with. Thank you. Next, I'm going to play a short bit where he talks about the CIA, LSD, and the conflicts in the 60s between the hippies and the anti-war activists. And he also gives some well-deserved praise to his friend Abby Hoffman. And as a little aside here, I'm going to point out a little trivia fact that only a true psychonaut will know. <laughs> and for what it's worth, I didn't learn this myself until about 20 years ago. And that was when John Hanna edited The Spirit of the Internet for me. And he pointed out to me that while Abby spelled his last name H-O-F-F-M-A-N, Dr. Hoffman spelled it differently, with one F and two N's, H-O-F-M-A-N-N. And while this isn't hidden information, not many people, myself included, ever notice the difference. 
So if anybody asks you what you learned from this podcast today, well, at least you have that. (laughs) And as you listen to this next piece, I first want to read a short quote from Abby Hoffman. And uh, I think it should give you a little better idea of what the two of them were thinking back in the 60s. And I'm quoting Abby Hoffman here. It's the agitators that change society. It never changes from the top down. Those few individuals who are willing to risk careers, marriages, freedom, these are the people who change the world. And now let's hear what Paul Krasner was also thinking back then. CIA had originally planned LSD to be uh, uh, used as a uh, truth serum or a control device. They wanted to control the population. Uh, but uh, instead, young people started to experiment with themselves. They would deprogram themselves from the mainstream culture, but then reprogram themselves with their own value system. And uh, so the whole CIA scenario backfired. They did it with, with such a sense of humor that people couldn't figure out what's their angle. You know, what do they want to get out of this? Do they want money? Do they want to sell something? And, you know, they just wanted to spread joy and the sense of, uh, of healthy rebellion against a constricting um, uh, civilization. The free speech movement started because they, wanted to, they didn't want CIA recruiters on campus uh, because the, um, uh, the CIA was really behind the war in Vietnam. And so they, they felt it was not appropriate that they should try and recruit students. It started out as almost an adversarial relationship because the political activists thought that the hippies were irresponsible. You know, there was a war going on and they're just smoking dope in the park. Uh, But they came to realize that uh, smoking dope in the park was a political act of civil disobedience against an unjust law. At the same time, the hippies thought that the political activists were just uh, playing into the hands of the administration uh, by protesting this war. But then the hippies began to see that the political activists were right, too. They could see that there was a connection between getting arrested for smoking pot in this country and dropping napalm on kids on the other side of the world and burning them alive. Uh, San Francisco became a kind of mecca, and there was a a sort of um, pilgrimage toward the West. um, And it was like a generation of pioneers who uh, went west without killing a single Indian along the way. The hippie had become such a media uh, uh, phenomenon. So they, went, they had a march called the Death of Hippie. They wanted to be called Free Americans, which, you know, a sweet little old lady wasn't like to say, get a haircut, you free American. It was just in the air, this feeling of being like a blade of grass growing through the concrete, you know, uh, and suddenly seeing the light and seeing others who were sharing in this kind of thing. You didn't know exactly what to call it, but you knew you were breaking through something that had uh, uh, been holding you down. He was a a natural leader, and uh, he told me I wasn't a leader because I didn't urge people to do things. Uh, But he had a charisma about him. When I first met Abby, I I told him how much uh, he reminded me of Lenny Bruce. You know, he had this spontaneous, fearless wit, and, and you know, he said, wow, really? He said, Lenny was my god. And so this kind of uh, uh, started an instant friendship with us. 
It worked. It became um, the headlines in Chicago papers that were like, yipes, the yippies are coming. So it was a myth that became a reality. At first there were 20 protesters indicted and eight cops, and then they, I was one of the 20, but then they wanted to have the, the scales of justice balanced, so they just limited it to eight uh, defendants. And um, the trial was um, a showcase for um, to, uh, to try and and display the difference between mainstream America and uh, countercultural war protesters. He was a target, you know, came out in, in even in the Nixon tapes. Uh, so he, he wanted to be an organizer, that's what he wanted. He wanted to start a school for organizing and, um, and you know, when, you, when you're in prison it's hard to organize. He wanted to be free and he wanted to be free not for its own sake but also so he could you know, um, continue to rabble-rouse. The, the, the lesson was, and that I learned, what the yippies and the pranksters and the underground press what it all had in common was our culture was our politics. Our culture was our politics. I think that best sums up the atmosphere of the anti-war movement in the 60s and early 70s. I remained on weekend duty with the Navy Reserve for several years after leaving active duty, and along with a few of my Navy friends, we demonstrated when we could without getting into trouble. So when we gathered at the Federal Building to throw our service medals on the steps, we didn't wear our uniforms to the demonstration. But rest assured, there were hundreds of veterans involved in those anti-war demonstrations in Houston, Texas during the spring of 1971. Well, the final Paul Krasner recording that I'm going to play today may be from one of his last public appearances. This talk was given on November 5th, 2016 at the Historical Society in Desert Hot Springs, California, where he was living at the time. And in this recording, Paul reflects on some of his favorite moments as a political activist, satirist, and comedian by reading selections from some of his writing. So let's join him now what was a, a turning point in, in my literary life. Uh, I was doing, for Mad Magazine, uh, a freelance pieces. And uh, a few pieces that they said were too uh, much grown up. Uh, and he said, my mother, wouldn't like, my mother wouldn't like it. And I said, well, your mother isn't a subscriber. <laughs> uh, he said, um, I, I said, well, this was the publisher, Will, Will, William Gaines, who published that magazine. And he said um, that uh, the editor thought that some stuff was not grown up. And I said, well, you mean, because it turned out that there were like a million and a quarter uh, who, uh, of, of teenagers, pre-teenagers, who, who, and, and so, uh, and I said, so you don't want adults? And he said, uh, no. I said, I guess you don't want to change horses in midstream. And he said, and this just still rings in my ears, and when he said, uh, not, not when the horse has a rocket up its ass. <laughs> oh. and, and this was the moment I realized that uh, I was going to publish a satirical magazine for adults, because there weren't, there weren't none then, not at all. And, and, and so, I, when I started publishing The Realist, a lot of books came out of that. So what I uh, thought I would do here is just have a, a few little pieces 
to read and, and to the context uh, that it was. The first thing I'll read is just the opening of the, of the book because I kept stalling and stalling and I finally did. So if I have an opening, then maybe I can continue. <laughs> I first woke up at the age of six. It began with an itch in my leg, my left leg, but somehow I knew I wasn't supposed to scratch it. Although my eyes were closed, I was standing up. In fact, I was standing on a huge stage, and I was playing the violin. I was in the middle of playing the Vivaldi Concerto in A minor. I was wearing a little Lord Fauntleroy suit, ruffled white silk shirt with puffy sleeves, black velvet short pants with ivory buttons, and matching vest, white socks and black patent leather shoes. shoes. My hair was platinum blonde and wavy. On this particular Saturday evening, January 14, 1939, I was in the process of becoming the youngest concert artist in any field ever to perform at Carnegie Hall. But all I knew was that I was being taunted by an itch, an itch that had become my adversary. I was tempted to stop playing the violin just for a second and scratch my leg with the bow, yet I was vaguely aware that this would not be appropriate. I had been well trained. I was a true professional. But that itch kept getting fiercer and fiercer. Then suddenly an impulse surfaced from my hidden laboratory of alternative possibilities, and I surrendered to it. Balancing on my left foot, I scratched my left leg with my right foot without missing a note of the Vivaldi Concerto. <laughs> Between the impulse and the surrender, there was a choice. I had decided to balance on one foot, and it was that simple act of choosing which triggered the precise moment of my awakening to the mystery of consciousness. This is me. The relief of scratching my leg was overshadowed by a surge of energy throughout my body. I was being engulfed by some kind of spiritual orgasm, by a wave of born-again ecstasy with no ideological context, no doctrine to explain the shock of my own experience, no dogma to function as a metaphor for the mystery. Instead, I woke up to the sound of laughing. I had heard that sound before, sweet and comforting, but never like this. Now I could hear a whole symphony of delight and reassurance, like clarinets and guitars harmonizing with saxophones and drums. It was the audience laughing. I opened my eyes. There were rows upon rows of people sitting out there in the dark, and they were all laughing together. They had understood my plight. It was easier for them to identify with the urge to scratch and with a little freak playing the violin. <laughs> and I could identify with them, identifying with me. I knew that laughter felt good, and I was pleased that it made the audience feel good, but I hadn't intended to make them laugh. I was merely trying to solve a personal dilemma. So the lesson I woke up to, this totally nonverbal internal buzz, would serve as my lifetime filter for, have, for perceiving reality and its rules. If you could somehow translate that word into words, it would spell out one person's logic is another person's humor. So um, it was, um, I, I was considered a child prodigy. And um, I, I, I didn't think I was because I was, uh, I, I had a technique for playing, but I had a passion for making people laugh. And so I just decided that I would drive my violin teacher crazy, uh, and and that I and I, I it ended up at his death. 
so anytime you want to uh, have me be a kid, a hitman, just uh, let me know. <laughs> so um, I, um, my, so my, my life, that, that was the, the first thing of, of my life, because although I was six years old, I had the, the feeling of a uh, uh, of just born, but I had six years of relative uh, uh, kind of sophistication. Uh, uh, but I came with with, a, with, with an innocence, and so um, uh, so I knew I knew then I wanted to make people laugh. I didn't even know that that they were comedians. We didn't, but I just you know if I could make my family laugh. I could make my mother laugh just by dropping a pencil on the table, and uh, and so I would do that. Or if she was mad at me, I would just drop a pencil on the on the table, and uh, she would forgive me. Um, so um, uh, I, I ended up uh, per performing. Uh, I, I started uh, with using my wife. I, I gave up when my teacher died. I I just uh, put my violin in the closet. And uh, when I started at the age of about 21, I started performing in places, but using the violin as a prop. And so I would play, uh, I would ask, um, what did uh, Adam say to Eve? And then I would play, don't sit under the apple tree without <laughs> This was before I got political. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and it was Lenny Bruce who suggested that I, uh, Get, get rid of the prop of the violin and stop and use my real name. I was using my name as Paul Mall. And, uh, <laughs> and once again, everything was downhill. And, uh, um, and so, uh, uh, and this was before uh, there was a village gate in New York, which is where I uh, uh, first performed. And uh, uh, and then I began to, during, during the Vietnam War, I was sort of like the peace version of Bob Hope, who always uh, uh, entertained the troops. And so I, I would, at rallies uh, uh, for uh, uh, civil rights, uh, uh, rallies and, uh, and the anti-war demonstrations, and, uh, and I would uh, talk about it there, but I would do it in a form of, of humor. and. Um, and, and so I, I got a lot of practice that uh, uh, because it was in the guise of a lecture, but I, I, I thought that, uh, I learned that satire is, um, uh, as opposed to comedy, that satire was a, um, um, it, w it, ha it had a truth inside of, 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 the, of the joke. And um, so that uh, it was sort of like pasta fazool. Uh, you know, where there was a bean for every macaroni. Uh, so, um, so, so it was always a, I, I would see through the prism of, of absurdity uh, when uh, on things that were, um, and so anything that was hypocritical or uh, inconsistent or cruel, anything that, that I saw that in the media was uh, what gave me something to be satirical about. And, and, and so here's uh, uh, Lenny. Steve Allen was the first subscri subscriber to The Realist. 
and he sent out a bunch of gifts of the realist to uh, a bunch of people, including Letty Bruce. And Letty Bruce sent a whole bunch of gift subscriptions uh, to a lot of his friends. And so it was a Malthusian kind of uh, increasing the subscribers to, to the realist. It was uh, by word of mouth, which is the best kind of advertising because it's free and, and you're being told that something is good uh, by someone you trust. It, it wasn't a, uh, uh, a, an ad that uh, would have all kinds of uh, bait, bait and switch or bitch and sweet. <laughs> um, so I'll just, uh, and so when Lenny came to New York, he gave me a call and I met him for the first time and um, he was in a, at a Hotel America in, in Times Square. Oh, I should say that at one point, um, uh, Hugh Hefner, a playboy, uh, assigned me to edit Lenny's autobiography, um, which was titled, uh, let's see, what was the one that, that Dale Arnold Carnegie did? It was a book, a, a self-help book. How to Win Friends and Influence That's right, How to Win Friends and, and, and Influence People. So Lenny's title of his autobiography was uh, uh, Talk Dirty and Influence People. How to Talk And so, um, um, so Playboy had me edit his book with uh, six sections in, um, um, in in Playboy, and then they published it as a book. And and I was traveling around with him at, uh, at certain times. So um, Lenny was taking Delauded for lethargy and had sent a telegram to a New York contact with a phrase. The Lord in Disguise, uh, as a code to send her daughter's prescription. Now in Atlantic City, Lenny got sick while waiting for that prescription to be filled. Later, while we were relaxing on the beach, I hes hesitatingly brought up the subject. I said, uh, don't you think it's ironic that your whole style should be so freeborn, and yet you can also be a slave to dope? And he said to me, what does that mean, a slave to dope? And I said, well, if you need a fix, you've got to stop whatever you're doing. So go somewhere and wrap a, la a lamp cord around your arm. Um, he said, then other people's are slaves to food. Oh, I'm so famished. Stop the car. I must have lunch immediately or I'll pass out. And I said, you said yourself you're probably going to die before you reach 40. Uh, yeah, he said, but I can't explain. It's like kissing God. And I said, well, I ain't going to argue with that. Uh, Lenny, though, he began to get paranoid about my role. Um, he said, you're going to go to literary cocktail parties, and you're going to say, yeah, that's right, I found Lenny slobbering in an alley. He would have been nothing without me. <laughs> of course, I denied any such intention, but he demanded that I take a lie detector test. <laughs> and I was paranoid enough to take him literally. I told him I couldn't work with him if he didn't trust me. We got into an argument, and I left for New York. I sent a letter of resignation to Playboy and a copy to Lenny. A few weeks later, I got a telegram from him that sounded like we had been on the verge of divorce. It said, why can't it be the way it used to be? <laughs> and I agreed to try again. Um, in December 1962, I flew to Chicago to resume with working with Lenny on his book. He was performing at the Gate of Horn. When I walked into the club, 
who was asking the whole audience to take a lie detector test. <laughs> and he recognized my laugh. So, um, uh, so Lenny was my, my first, uh, uh, Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce were both my uh, uh, mentors, whether they knew it or not. And uh, they were different. Uh, uh, Mort Saul was uh, very political and intellectual, and Lenny was more biological and uh, uh, and he would talk about uh, politicians and and their uh, uh, well, for example, uh, John F. Kennedy. You know, he would talk about their their sexuality and uh, uh, you know, such as Marilyn Monroe and other models. Uh, there was a lot of that. I mean, now it, now it, 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 it would be uh, uh, in at a campaign. People say, well, you know, you went, but but then. Uh, it was a taboo. None of, none of the uh, media was mentioning what he did uh, 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 as, with mistresses and, and cheat on his wife. It was just unknown by the, I mean, known by the media, but but not mentioned by them. Uh, now it would be in the front page. So um, it was. Uh, it was. An interesting thing to, to, to travel with Lenny Bruce because he had a um, uh, he, he would might have a throwaway line at a, at a performance, and then um, on another uh, performance he would expand it to a minute or two, and then over the over the weeks where he was performing, it would uh, he would have like a ten minute routine that he had, uh, and, and, and that's how he did it. It just evolved as, as, as he went along. And, and so that was a, a lesson to me, uh, that, uh, that it was not just a, a, a static thing, that it would, that it would evolve as, as you perform. Okay, this was 1967, the summer of love, and uh, and uh, when uh, there was a, a lot of psychedelics. When LSD became illegal, the psychedelic oracle, uh, oracle was a, uh, a, a underground paper that, uh, in San Francisco. Uh, the psychedelic oracle became politicized, and the radical Berkeley Bar began to treat the drug subculture as fellow outlaws. So now there was to be an event in the nation's capital that would publicly cross-fertilize political protesters with hippie mystics. The plan was simple, to defy the law of gravity. It was decided to hold a special ceremony uh, which would levitate the, the Pentagon a hundred feet. Um, we applied for a permit, then revealed to the media that Pentagon officials wanted to limit levitation to 22 feet. <laughs> because that was the height of their ladders. <laughs> so they'd still be able to pull the building down. But later they insisted on restricting it to no more than three feet above, above the ground, and the press accurately reported that. Um, in order to build up further interest in the event, we staged preliminary cracks that were bound to get media coverage. Abby Hoffman invented an imaginary new drug, a sexual equivalent to the police tear gas, mace. It was Christian's lace, uh, supposedly a combination of LSD and DMSO, 
which when applied to the skin would be absorbed into the bloodstream and get an instantaneous aphrodisiac. Glaze was actually Schwartz Disappiro from Taiwan. When sprayed, it left a purple stain and disappeared. A press conference was called at Abby and Anita's apartment where lace could be observed in action. I was supposed to be there as a reporter who accidentally sprayed with lace from a squirt gun. To my surprise, I would put down my pad, take off my clothes, and start making love with a beautiful redhead who had also gotten accidentally sprayed, along with another deliberately sprayed couple right there in the living room while the journalists took notes. I was really looking forward to this combination of media event and blind date. Even though the sexual revelation was at its height, there was something exciting about knowing in advance that I was guaranteed to get laid. <laughs> Although I felt somewhat guilty about attempting to deceive, to deceive fellow reporters. But there was a scheduling conflict. I was already committed to speak at a literary conference at the University of Iowa on that same day. So instead of being accidentally dosed with lace, I was assigned by Abby to purchase cornmeal in Iowa, which would be used to encircle the Pentagon as a pre-levitation rite. I was supposed to be a rationalist, uh, a rationalist, but it was hard to say no to Abby. In Iowa, uh, novelist Robert Stone drove me to a farm. I told the farmer I'd like to buy some cornmeal to go. Of course you are fine, he asked. I glanced at Stone for guidance. He shrugged and said, well, since it's a magic uh, ritual, I would definitely recommend course. Court, please, I said to the farmer. How many pounds? Uh, Thirteen, please. The farmer smiled and said there was no charge. He was just anxious for us to get out of there. <laughs> and so I flew back to New York with a 13-pound sack of coarse cornmeal properly stored in the overhead rack. Meanwhile, there were stories about lace in the New York Post, the Daily News, and Time Magazine including the promise that three gallons of lace would be brought to Washington, along with a large supply of plastic water pistols, so that lace could be sprayed on police and the National Guard at the Pentagon demonstration. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy who substituted for me in the accidental sexual encounter with the beautiful redhead at the lace press conference ended up living with her. Even though I had never met her, I was jealous. <laughs> uh, somehow I felt cheated. <laughs> but this was, the, the purpose of, of this was to, uh, we didn't have any advertising budget, and so the thing was to, 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 to give them something good that they could write about and, and quote from us naughty uh, quotes. And uh, it was a way of, of uh, them uh, uh, having uh, information about uh, where we were going to go at, at the uh, Pentagon. And, uh, and so people who thought, well, the lace was going to be sprayed there, we could see police and National Guardmen uh, uh, put into action the slogan, uh, uh, make love, not war. <laughs> so uh, um, so it was, it was uh, a mutual, mutual manipulation. Uh, with, with the media. So, so one more little thing here. I was, I was covering the uh, Patty Hearst trial. Uh, in April 1976, on the same day that the Pope announced that he was not gay, uh, uh, that's true, I mean, he did. I received a registered letter from the FBI informing me that I was on a hit list 
of the Amelia I have are in custody. <laughs> <laughs> I was more logically a target of the government than a New World uh, uh, liberation from, unless, of course, they happen to be the same. <laughs> was the right wing of the FBI warning me about the left wing of the FBI? <laughs> Communicate from the New World Liberation Front charged that, quote, the pigs led and organized the Zapata unit. Jacques Rouget, ab uh, above courier for the underground uh, New World Liberation Front, told me that the reason I was on the hit was because I had written that Patty Hearst kidnapper uh, Donald C.Q. DeFries was a police informer. And it was more than that. Uh, he also uh, was a, uh, not, not only was he um, uh, a uh, police informer, but he, for the FBI, COINTELPRO? Uh, that's right, yes. That was, COINTELPRO was short for the counterintelligence program. And, um, and so, uh, and, and then there was a, a, a person named Colston Westbrook, and uh, he was uh, a CAI. He was in Vietnam uh, in the assassination uh, groups there, and he came back to the States, and he became the handler for Donald DeFries. So it was not uh, what, uh, um, there's a book by Tubin now, or what's his first name? Jeffrey, Jeffrey Tubin, who, who wrote a, 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 a mean-spirited thing about Patty, and never mentioned any of this. He was clueless about the real uh, un, um, underbelly of, of the kidnapping of, of Patty Hearst. Here it was. So, um, so when the, the above-ground uh, above courier uh, told me that I was on the hit list because I had written about Patty Hearst kidnapping, who was a police informer, and I, but that's true, I said. It's a matter of record. Doesn't does that make any difference? Uh, not to him. I mean, it, uh, documentation was irrelevant. He said, if the New World Liberation Front asked me to kill you, he admitted, I would. Jacques, I replied, I think this puts a slight damper on our relationship. <laughs> uh, and so that's what um, my daughter, Holly, and I moved to a new, a new apartment without giving him that. I want to have uh, some questions and answers here. Uh, the last time I did that was when I spoke before um, uh, at the Rotary Club. Uh, I was invited there and by a friend who um, asked me to do it. And, uh, and I had a uh, question and answer then, too, there. Uh, the first one who asked the question was uh, the, the then city manager. And he said, so, what do you think of our little town here at Desert Springs? And I had a, 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 an angel on my shoulder that said, don't say it. <laughs> and the devil was on the other shoulder and said, if you don't say it, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. <laughs> and so I had, I, it was, I used to have a, a retroactive, uh, uh, advanced retroactive. And so the devil won, and, uh, and, and I said, well, um, the uh, Desert Hot Springs has, um, is, is like a microcosm of the federal government. Um, it's corrupt and incompetent. <laughs> and 
there was a silence. <laughs> uh, and that he realized uh, uh, and he re that he better laugh. Because the audience was looking at him to see what he would do. And so when he left, and everybody laughed. It was, um, so um, um, ask you, I'll answer any question. Uh, yes. Uh, would you just tell us what your answer was when you were uh, called the father of the um, uh, yip yippee movement? The underground. Oh, oh you mean... You mean um, People magazine. Yeah, called the father of the. Oh, they call me uh, the father of the underground press. Yeah, there you go. I sent a telegram saying that that I demanded a paternity test. Uh, <laughs> couldn't resist it. Yes. Yes. Um, when I was in San Francisco, I, I was um, uh, I went. I wanted to do, I, I didn't like to say my own name somehow, and, uh, and I said I would like to uh, uh, do the show and, and, and I would be called Rumble Forested. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and they said, okay, they, they said uh, they, that was fine. <laughs> and, and so and I tried to get my name in the uh, San Francisco uh, phone book, and they said, well, no, you, we could say Forested Rumble. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, and I said, well, I had, I, I couldn't argue with them. <laughs> so, um, but it, but, um, but it was fun. It was fun having, uh, uh, and I started doing a syndicated um, uh, column for the underground press before it became the alternative press, and, and using that name and. Um, so it was. Uh, I, I, I almost forgot that it was actually a rumble stilt skin. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yes. who, who had it? Somebody had it. Oh, uh, oh you, I, I want any story from the bus. <laughs> oh, the Ken Kesey, Frankster's bus. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Oh, well, here's here's one that I remember. Uh, um, uh, um, that there was a at the back of the bus. There was a. Um, Helium thing that would that that, that uh, had yeah would get a big balloon and pushes and so it would fill it with helium and uh, and he would just give them out free and uh, uh, one mother and her kid would were there and uh, and she gave him a quarter and and Keith he said just to be sardonic humorous he said um, uh, I'm a I'm a famous author and she said, oh and she said. I give you a dollar then. And but he was he uh, he was really humble, you know. He, he, uh, I'd be at a party with him, and we'd be in the kitchen, and somebody would uh, come into the kitchen, and he would just, "Hi, I'm Ken." You know, he wasn't. He, he really had a humility, uh, even though he was uh, a uh, a. Uh, Charismatic figure, and, uh, and but it enabled him to not not let, not let his ego get in the way of, of his relating with people. Um, I heard a female voice before, but uh, well, I was just going to say, uh, talk a little bit about the Chicago. I don't know, was it eight or seven or uh, your experience? Um, yeah, when. Um, 
Let's see, I, I guess it was in, the, in December of 1967, uh, 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 in de December, um, and uh, 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 I was with Abby Hoffman and his wife Anita, and uh, we got caught in a um, in a hurricane, and uh, we were going to go to see a movie uh, that was Abby's fav favorite movie called uh, The Professionals with, uh, and it was about, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember who was in it, uh, but in any case, uh, it, it, uh, we, we didn't go there, but the rain was getting harder and harder, and we went to see the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, I think it was, the Dino Laurentiis book about that. And um, I remember on the way back, I was complaining about Abraham, uh, who was going to uh, cut his son's head off or whatever he was going to do, because that's what the deity told him to do. And I said, well, that was just blind obedience. And Abby said, no, it's revolutionary, uh, uh, revolutionary trust. And uh, it was the kind of thing where uh, uh, we discussed religion. We were always um, interested in, in, in religion and how um, uh, that there was war uh, being uh, on, on the base of uh, uh, religion often. And uh, so he, uh, we had a lot of discussions like that. It was really, really good company. Uh, to be with. He was um, witty. He was very, uh, and he would just like on the Lower East Side where we lived, a, a police car would go by and there were uh, two cops in the front and two cops in, in, in the back. And Abby would yell at them, are you guys going on a double date? <laughs> he would play billiards with them at the, at, at the uh, police station. Um, so he would, uh, he was, he was really, uh, uh, I was fortunate having a magazine and meeting all these people that, uh, that Abby and uh, Kesey and uh, Tim Leary and uh, Ram Das and all of these people, I was very fortunate to meet these people. Um, and uh, I remember going to a party once where there were a bunch of gurus uh, and uh, they were in the kitchen there complaining about their servants. And, and I, I said, this is, and it was like, I, I told him this was like being at Patty Hearst's house where the servants were, um, were complained about by uh, her parents. Um, so, it, but it was, it was um, always uh, uh, a, a pleasure being with, with these countercultural icons, really. And uh, so it, it, was, it was a lot of fun seeing how, um, like gurus, there was one guru who spoke at the uh, uh, Village Theater in New York, and uh, I was invited to go in the green room, and there were his his uh, servants uh, using wild root cream oil to get his long hair and beard. Down. So it was always interesting to see these behind the scenes. <laughs> Any other questions? When was the last time you fiddled with your fiddle? Oh. Um, I forget what year, but it was like 40 years after I had stopped uh, uh, using it. And uh, I was 
What's his name? Uh, there was a movie, a uh, movie series called uh, Billy, uh, what was it? it was Billy Jack. Billy Jack. And, uh, and what was the name of, of uh, the guy? Oh, Tom, Tom Laughlin? Tom Laughlin. Yeah, yeah, Tom Laughlin, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I met, I, I met him and he uh, invited me uh, to uh, dinner. And uh, he was a real, uh, uh, almost a zealot about Thomas Jefferson. And uh, he had, uh, you know, furniture from Jefferson. He had uh, China plates uh, from uh, Jefferson. He had, uh, there were recipes he had. Um, I think one was pea soup that we ate. Uh, and, uh, and he had uh, Thomas Jefferson's violin. And he asked if I would play it. And I, I, I did 40 years, uh, but I couldn't resist playing Thomas Jefferson's. So, um, so I, I took the violin in my hands, and um, I said, I, I, again, the devil went over the angel. <laughs> I said, I'd like to dedicate this song to um, Thomas Jefferson's slaves. <laughs> and uh, and um, and I, the only thing I felt competent to play was a Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to do the Vivaldi Concerto in A minor. Uh, so I, I played that, and then as a private little joke, nobody really noticed, I, I, I scratched my left leg with my right foot. <laughs> <laughs> just, just as a reminiscence. So, um, uh, yeah. yeah, you did a lot of protesting and things and all that. And how many did you get arrested a bunch of times? And how did uh, that work out? And uh, I got um, arrested once for um, for stopping at a red light. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, we were a bunch of us were walking on the sidewalk, and uh, uh, to uh, forget the protest we were, we were going to, but it was some, but. It, um, uh, we were walking along the sidewalk, and then there was a, a, a red light, and, and I called out, uh, hold off, you know, to the people behind me, there's a red light. And uh, a cop arrested me. He's saying that I was disturbing uh, the, the public or something. Uh, I, but it was very cold. This was December, and uh, uh, he just wanted to get out of, out of it. So, um, and so uh, we were in... Uh, uh, and and the, uh, uh, we were in prison overnight, and uh, we had a, uh, uh, there was a, what? Bill, Bill Schaap, yeah, no, yeah, Bill Schaap was the name of, of a, um, uh, a lawyer, and, uh, and he came, and, and uh, he, he was defending us, and, uh, the uh, the judge was saying he didn't you know he, he, he understood uh, when the the lawyer explained what had happened and so he just uh, decided to let us go and I said uh, he said but don't 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 um, don't don't tempt fate uh, the next time and I said to the lawyer. Uh, I said, well, is, is the First Amendment a, uh, not a, a, a uh, you know, is that uh, faith? Is, is that, or, uh, a, it was the First Amendment. It was freedom of assembly. 
And uh, the lawyer jabbed me with his elbow and said, come on, you know, this is my first case. <laughs> so uh, it was, and then, and then I, I was just a brat, uh, you know, because each, each of us uh, would have a picture taken of, of us, of, of every individual with the cop that arrested them. And, and so I just said, to the cop as our picture was being taken said, now are we going to go to the prom? <laughs> and, and I just couldn't resist it. So uh, uh, it was just, uh, uh, I, I followed those impulses and uh, it got me into a lot of trouble sometimes. <laughs> Any more? Anybody? Yes. Yeah, I remember you were pretty good friends with uh, Peter uh, Bergman. Peter Bergman, yeah, Peter Bergman was um, uh, not the actor Peter Bergman, uh, but this was, he, he was the first one in, in a group called the San Francisco Diggers. Uh, and uh, and the, the first time I heard the word um, ecology was from him. I had never, I looked it up, but I didn't. And he, but he was ahead of himself. He died recently, but uh, he had a, a, a book about um, I'm trying to remember what the name of, of it was, but it was it, it was about the, the boundaries of of, uh, of different countries, you know, like as if, uh, if there's acid rain that uh, falls in Canada, does that mean it's not going to happen in the in the northern U.S. And, and so he was brilliant. He, he I was this was in New York and. and he left to San Francisco uh, with my girlfriend, uh, but uh, but I just re uh, remembered ecology. <laughs> okay, well I, I I appreciate your uh, being an audience uh, and uh, laughing, because uh, uh, that's my job. Thank you. <laughs>